Welcome to the Metal Miner Podcast. I'm Taras Berezowski, Managing Editor at Azul Partners. Today we continue our series that we're calling Manufacturing Trade Policy Confidential. Our guest is Tim Brightbill, partner at the law firm Wiley Ryan in Washington, D.C. We've talked to Tim a number of times over the years, most recently on what China achieving market economy status would mean for global trade. Fittingly, amidst our interest in and coverage of the Section 232 investigation this year, that issue is back in the news with a vengeance. Well, this is a huge issue. It's China's single biggest trade issue, and it's also right now the most important uh, dispute case pending at the World Trade Organization. So Commerce Department has found China is still a non-market economy under U.S. law. Uh, China doesn't like that outcome. It has taken the European Union and the United States to the WTO. That case is heating up right now. Uh, It's in the initial stages of briefing before a a three-member panel of the World Trade Organization in Geneva. There will be a hearing in December, and uh, it is the most uh, critically important WTO decision uh, pending right now and will be one of the biggest uh, in the history of, of the WTO. Tim's been quite busy lately. On behalf of his clients, he's been working on a number of trade cases. Most recently, a safeguard case involving a surge of imported solar panels and also a hardwood plywood case. He tells us that his clients always want to know what's going on behind closed doors. Funny, we do too. Listen in to Lisa Reisman's conversation with Tim Brightbill. Well, Tim, it's great catching up with you again. I know it's been a number of years since we sort of conversed on a number of trade issues. So there's so much going on. I felt like um, there's a lot to dig into. So I think um, so. We're we're focusing on a series of conversations with different folks, different um, you know policy wonks, trade attorneys, folks in the industry. And just getting different perspectives. And really, our goal with the series is to discuss some of the um, some of the issues that have been what we call like I, I, they're either the hidden stories or they're kind of underreported. And so, you know, that that's sort of the context for this. So I think we'll start with the general because I think it's always good. You're a, a trade attorney. You're very involved in the situ, you know, in all of the, the different trade cases. Looking at the Section 232 investigation, it would be great to just understand from you, given where we are, um, you know, in the November timeframe, you know, what trade remedies do you think the Trump, Trump administration are considering in general? And what do you perceive to be the most likely outcome at this point for Section 232? Well, Section 232 is one of those areas of trade law that has been used very infrequently that the Trump administration is trying to revive. And it's very unclear where things are headed right now. There uh, there was an investigation begun by the president uh, exploring the national security concerns related to steel and aluminum imports. There were full days of hearings held at the Commerce Department with a great deal of industry testimony. But we're now in a position where we're waiting for the Commerce Department and the president to move forward. And unfortunately, it's unclear uh, whether the president uh, still intends to proceed, and if so, when that will happen. So uh, we're hopeful on behalf of domestic manufacturing that the president will 
uh, take action. The most likely action, I think, would be additional tariffs or quotas on steel and aluminum imports, um, because in our view, they do represent a threat to national security broadly defined. Um, both of these are critical manufacturing industries, and so it's extremely important to uh, address uh, the import surges. And in particular, it's discouraging uh, this year so far because there were surges of imports to try and beat any remedy in a Section 232 case. Now it's not quite clear when the remedy is going to happen and what it will cover. And so we have imports hanging over the market, and yet we don't have a remedy to help these domestic industries um, and to strengthen them. Great. Now that's um, you mentioned something that I kind of want to touch on in greater detail. And I, two things you said: one was that this was a law that has not been um, invoked or, or used for a very long time, and then you touched on national security. And I think there's a lot of debate about, you know, is steel or aluminum really a matter of national security? And so, could you kind of just um, share your point of view on how you look at national security and how? others can think about national security and why national security is at, you know, is a risk here um, with having the imports coming in for aluminum and steel? Sure. I think uh, when the law has been used in the past, national security has not just been defined uh, to mean, you know, wartime sort of national security, but critical uh, infrastructure to, uh, to the U.S. economy. And so if you want to think about foundational building blocks, uh, steel and aluminum manufacturing are right at the core of so many industries that we think uh, clearly both of them qualify as national security interests so that when there are surges of imports, uh, it does threaten our critical infrastructure and our national security. And um, certainly the capability to make a variety of products. Uh, We don't want to uh, leave certain types of steel and aluminum manufacturing to countries like China and Russia. So uh, there is a national security interest here. I think the president and the commerce secretary have properly identified it and explored it. And uh, it's certainly justified under U.S. law and WTO law. Um, but now we need to see the follow through. Just to give you another example, um, uh, large diameter pipe and tube products are another area where uh, the industry is using so little of its capacity right now that there are uh, threats to the ability to uh, make these products going forward. And of course, if you want to move oil or natural gas around, um, that's critical infrastructure as well. So that's a part of our national security, um, again, as the law allows. That's interesting. Just a follow-up question on that. I know the industry makes the argument that uh, different lines within their production facilities create a whole bunch of uh, materials, some of which are commercially used, and then others that are uniquely used for military applications. What's your thought on that argument as well? I mean, is that a compelling argument? Uh, that the industry uses to sort of then keep the operations alive by they have to run commercial product through those um, through those facilities and lines. Absolutely. Uh, again, for uh, pipe and tube products, uh, that's a great example. Or for steel plate products. So for pipe and tube, 
some of those products are used in things like uh, bomb bodies where they have a direct military application. But of course, most of pipe and tube doesn't go into making bombs or munitions. It goes into oil and gas transmission. But if you want to have the capacity to make the military applications, you have to have up-to-date production facilities that can make everything, including uh, the day-to-day oil and gas uh, transmission as well. Same thing for plate. A number of plate manufacturers are able to make armored plate for use in military vehicles, uh, serving our soldiers uh, overseas and around the world. But of course, that's not the only thing that they make. If you want to have the ability to make these high-end armored plate applications, you also have to be able to make a full range of plate products and sell them. And so if you are being harmed by uh, plate imports, it harms uh, all plate applications and that weakens your ability to make armored plate. So I think those are a couple examples of how, again, you look at um, national security through a broader lens and you see that these steel and aluminum imports um, and related steel products and aluminum products are uh, national security concerns. Sure. No, that makes sense. Um, I want to move into another argument then that I think we're hearing a lot in the press. And in fact, I think a number of trade organizations have even published white papers on the topic, but everyone's talking about retaliatory trade actions that would be likely. And I think it's interesting that you noted that you said it's you know, if you were to try to predict the most likely scenario, you mentioned tariffs or quotas potentially. How do you respond to the notion of retaliatory actions and that that's, that should be a reason we should not move forward with any action on 232? What do, how do you counter that? Well, uh, the, the U.S. law clearly allows the president to take actions to protect and defend our national security. And uh, that is addressing uh, import surges that have already occurred. So uh, in that sense, we have to uh, rebalance our trade uh, obligations and trade balances to try and take that into effect. So um, uh, U.S. law permits it, and international law also permits it. So um, it's not retaliatory in that sense. And um, again, uh, we we have the law for those times when national security is threatened or raised, and so there should be an ability to use it um, when uh, other international rules or laws are not not being respected, and and when imports are coming in uh, in those kind of uh, injurious levels or harmful levels to our national security. Got it. So um, kind of taking that, I'm just going to skip forward to sort of a recent thing that happened with um, President Trump meeting with uh, President Xi in China recently. And they seem to show a good kind of um, agreeable face, if you will, in public. What do you think is happening behind closed doors? And how do you think this conversation is playing out behind closed doors? You know, it's with regard to the retaliatory actions as well. I can only imagine what this conversation was like. Sure, it's it's uh, extremely difficult to know. Of course, uh, all of our clients uh, want to know uh, what's going on within the administration, uh, what decisions are being made, uh, and we're getting mixed signals from the administration as well. Um, at one point during the trip, President Trump said he didn't uh, blame 
China for the trade deficit, which certainly contradicted things he was saying during the campaign. But then uh, within a day or two, he made a very strong speech last week at APEC, the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, where he quite forcefully stood up for uh, the United States in terms of trade, said we would not tolerate um, systems where we are uh, giving up trading rights and not receiving anything in return. So uh, you balance uh, what's said uh, publicly, even what's said publicly, you see very strong stances on trade uh, led by President Trump and Ambassador Lighthizer. Uh, and then you also see some more conciliatory things. I do think this administration is uh, looking for ways to address system systemic problems on trade that have existed for quite some time. Trade agreements uh, that are one-sided, uh, where the United States uh, does not receive as much benefit as the other countries that are parties, uh, trade policies that don't make any sense. Um, uh, so I think this administration is looking looking to make some fair, fairly serious changes to how we approach uh, trade laws and trade policy. Do you think um, the whole negotiation or discussion with North Korea is potentially uh, softening Trump's stance on trade in his discussions um, with President Xi? Well, it's a great point. Certainly, uh, uh, we have to deal with uh, the threat that North Korea poses, and China should be in a good position to to help on that to some degree. But uh, I don't see this president backing away from his core mission of strengthening U.S. manufacturing and U.S. jobs. Uh, I think uh, most believe that is one of the main reasons why he won this election, and it's where his strength is politically. And so he'll continue to focus on policies that strengthen U.S. manufacturing and strengthen U.S. jobs. And that'll play out uh, in all types of trade policy arenas, whether it's the relationship with China, whether it's a renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, whether it's other types of free trade agreements that we look at. Uh, for example, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the U.S.-South uh, Korea Free Trade Agreement. Um, and so I, I think I think this administration is committed to it. They're getting the personnel in place, um, and I think they're ready to move uh, in the short to medium term. Okay, great. Um, I'm just going to switch gears here briefly. I know we have, I believe we've interviewed you previously, and I know we've done a whole white paper and website, microsite on China mar market economy status. Um, I've just been catching some headlines recently, and it looks like we've you know, really agitated the Chinese media over these aluminum foil trade cases uh, because they're still using, quote unquote, the old method of determining uh, anti-dumping versus or dumping rather uh, versus what China says should be the new standard under market economy status. And just wanted to get your take on that and, um, you know, any yes. thoughts there? Well, this is a huge issue. It's China's single biggest trade issue, and it's also right now the most important uh, dispute case pending at the World Trade Organization. So you're right. Uh, as you said, China has been treated as a non-market economy for purposes of anti-dumping cases in the United States. Uh, there's an assumption that their prices and costs are government-controlled or state-controlled, 
And so if you're determining whether is China, whether China is dumping here, you can't use their prices and costs. So instead, you use prices and costs from a comparable third country, say, for example, India or Mexico, some other country, to determine the level of dumping. Uh, that tends to result in higher dumping margins against uh, Chinese producers on a variety of cases. Uh, it is permissible under U.S. law, and it's permissible under WTO law as well. Now, China claims that when it joined the World Trade Organization in 2001, it had specific language in its uh, agreement to join called the Protocol of Accession, where countries would stop using this methodology after 15 years. And those 15 years expired at the end of uh, 2016. Um, so that has come and gone. The United States has not changed its methodology. In fact, as you mentioned in a recent dumping determination involving aluminum foil imports, the Commerce Department looked at a variety of factors and concluded overwhelmingly in a 200-page memo that China is still a state-controlled economy. It is still a non-market economy. It doesn't allow its currency to freely move. Uh, it controls the means of production. Many enterprises and, of course, a variety of uh, banks in China are state-owned and controlled. Foreign investment is limited in key and critical sectors. Uh, labor rights are limited. So looking at all of those factors, Commerce Department has found China is still a non-market economy under U.S. law. Uh, China doesn't like that outcome. It has taken the European Union and the United States to the WTO. That case is heating up right now. Uh, it's in the initial stages of briefing before a, a three-member panel of the World Trade Organization in Geneva. There will be a hearing in December, and uh, it is the most uh, critically important WTO decision uh, pending right now and will be one of the biggest uh, in the history of, of the WTO. So kind of taking that one step further, let's say the WTO were to rule in favor of China's position that indeed they should be considered a market economy. You know, they should get that market economy status. Do you think that will change um, how the Trump administration looks at Section 232? <laughs> uh, interesting. Uh, well, there's a few things playing out there. Um, for one thing, uh, however the WTO panel rules, there will be an appeal stage before an appellate body. So it'll be some time, uh, more than a year, before we have a final answer from the WTO. Even after that, the United States is not required to implement a WTO decision that goes against us. So we can make the choice uh, not to change how we treat China. Um, and again, uh, the United States, when it has a choice between U.S. law and WTO law, will, is required to follow U.S. law, uh, which requires this analysis of whether a country country is a market economy or a non-market economy. So I don't know if it's directly related to the Section 232 investigation or not, um, but I, I, I don't see the Trump administration changing its treatment of China right now. I mean, 
the expectation when China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001 was that it would become more like a market economy, that its pricing would reflect actual market prices, uh, that uh, it would stop subsidizing and benefiting its state-owned enterprises. And unfortunately, those things haven't happened. And in fact, in some key areas, China has moved in the wrong direction. Um, and so, and, and you see it even in recent, uh, you know, the recent meetings of the Chinese government, where it seems like uh, things are becoming more state dictated and driven, and less market dictated and driven. So, so I don't know how it w how the Trump administration will respond if it would be with Section Two Thirty Two, or just to continue to to treat China as a non market economy, regardless of of where the WTO comes out on this, but I don't see this administration changing course uh, anytime soon, and it should not, in my view. Got it. And so I know in our little, I know we had created jointly a tutorial. Well, I don't say we jointly, but you had participated in um, a tutorial that we had developed on just sort of the different factors that contribute to what is market economy status. I'm just curious because one of the factors I think China's working on, um, to their credit, um, is really around the closure of you know high polluting industries and you know the closure of capacity as much as they can. And it's, it's interesting watching these numbers because on the one hand uh, there are real capacity curtailments, but I think. Um, and, and then what happens, though, is some of that production moves to different producers who, you know, allegedly are more efficient um, and cleaner. But what, what I find interesting is the, some of these state-owned entities are actually becoming a little more profitable, which is something that has been completely – do you think the whole environmental the – cur the curbs on uh, pollution and the environmental cleanup – will have some beneficial impact to China becoming more market-like? I mean, how do you view the environment in that? Or this, we may be kind of straying off a subject here. No, I, it's, it's a great question. I think, uh, look, I think there will be pressure on the Chinese government to do something about the environment. Um, it's been a couple of years since I've been to Beijing, but um, you know, when you can't breathe the air or see across the street, Something has to be done, and I, and I am hopeful that um, that public pressure, as as limited as it can be in China, will have some impact on this issue. However, I don't think it will address the issue of overcapacity in so many Chinese industries, and this includes not only steel and aluminum, but for example, solar panels, um, where China has uh, it has uh, you know. 60% of the world's capacity uh, in solar panels and is now adding capacity in third countries around the world. Uh, cement, uh, plywood, just industry after industry where China has um, far more capacity than is needed. Often it's subsidized capacity through a combination of state funding, um, local and regional grants, and other incentive programs all the incentives in China are not to close capacity. They're to keep uh, factories and keep jobs uh, regardless of the cost. So we see it over and over again where there, are, uh, there is overcapacity fueled by subsidies that then leads to dumping of products. And the United States is often the most attractive market for 
dumping of that excess capacity. You've seen this in the steel industry where the OECD, um, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, has tried to work on this for years uh, just to get countries to commit to reductions in steel capacity uh, with very little progress. It's very frustrating for U.S. industries. So, um, so yes, I think uh, environment does put some pressure on the Chinese government, but it's not enough to address uh, this issue of overcapacity. That's why the trade laws and trade rules are going to have to uh, to be a part of the picture. Right, which makes sense. And I, I do think it's slow going. And I think sometimes what's interesting is we see some of the numbers still spiking despite, you know, the, the uh, capacity closures and whatnot. So I have a random question that is very, uh, it's sort of what I call a small question versus some of these larger issues that we've been talking on. Uh, Just wanted to get your point of view on it, though. It was something I did listen to the, well, I won't say I listened to all of it. There were, I don't know, 10 to 15 hours worth of testimony across different trade groups um, when Department of Commerce opened up the discussion on 232 for industry. But I wanted to um, touch on one of the observations that I had made, which was that a lot of the folks that were um, arguing against Section 232, they seemed to be, what I found interesting was that they were picking out um, niche subsections or subsegments of the steel and also the aluminum industry, bringing to bear um, a very specific grade or material that is either not produced in the United States or not, there's not enough of it produced in the United States to meet demand. And I'm just wondering if you, you know, as you're looking at this whole issue and working with industry, do they recognize or how do we think about some of these, what these carve out or sub segments of the market? And I'll give you a couple examples. Tin plate, for example, Uh, the domestic industry doesn't produce enough tin plate to satisfy the market, and imports are required to meet just the domestic demand. There's some other niche products in the grain-oriented electrical steel market as well, uh, where the sole domestic producer is not producing all of the grades demanded by our um, folks that are building out the power grid and such. Any thoughts just on that sort of the, whether whether a carve-out makes sense or these smaller sub-segments? I think I have two thoughts on that. First of all, you have to be very careful about creating carve-outs or exceptions, or you risk weakening whatever remedy is provided to try and help U.S. manufacturing and help U.S. jobs. So uh, yes, to the extent there are some segments where there isn't current production of a steel product or an aluminum product or solar product, um, that may be true in the short term. But you don't want to carve those products out of a remedy. You want to encourage the U.S. industry to move into those sectors, to move into the value-added products. And some of these, you know, tin plate and grain-oriented steel are high-value-added products. Um, you want those. You you want to encourage uh, capacity and capability there. So you don't want to carve them out just because uh, they're not made or they're not made in sufficient quantities um, currently. I'd also say, in some cases, it's uh, the domestic industry is fully capable of doing these things. Uh, it's just a matter of can they get a price that that gives them some return on their investment, um, and are they able to make the investments in their mills 
and in their facilities uh, to make all these products. If if there's uh, trade relief, uh, if there are uh, if there's some way of addressing the import surge, then domestic industries will be more free to make those capital investments to make the research and development um, into the products that they may not currently make or may not make in sufficient quantities. Um, and that being said, you know, president does have the ability to make a remedy flexible under Section 232 or under uh, the safeguards law um, for the, the solar trade cases, for example. So um, there is an ability to uh, recognize where there may be a product where there isn't uh, any U.S. industry and where the U.S. industry doesn't have an interest in making the product over over the long term. So um, uh, I think those are those are my thoughts. But the, there has to, it's very dangerous to try and carve up these remedies and include a lot of uh, exclusions and carve outs and products that won't be covered. That just leads to uh, to circumvention and imports coming in in other ways that's that's not helpful and undercuts relief in the long term. I think that long-term perspective too is really important. And I think that's one that also is sort of a hidden story that we're not talking about all of these things. In general, I think the debate has not been looking at the long-term as much. So I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I think a little bit earlier, we had, we had talked about market economy status. I just want to um, go back to that just for a moment. Do you think there's any opportunity, well, I won't say opportunity, but do you think if uh, the World Trade Organization does rule against China, um, do you think China will retaliate, backlash, shun the US or the EU in, in key commodities or key areas? Will they focus on other trade partners? What would China do if the WTO says, no, you are not a market economy? Well, one thing China is doing is negotiating free trade agreements uh, around the world and it's uh, requiring the other countries in these free trade agreements to say, we will no longer treat you as, as a non-market economy in dumping cases. So they're negotiating in free trade deals what they can't get uh, at the WTO or from, uh, from the United States and the European Union. So it's difficult because a lot of uh, smaller countries uh, don't have the leverage to stand up to China. And so they're forced to take a free trade deal that may have uh, some very bad concessions uh, for them like like this. So, so that's one thing China is doing. And yes, uh, China has shown time and time again, it does retaliate um, uh, in any way as possible. I think it views the trade laws as a cost of doing business. And so uh, they will, if a, if a dumping case is, is put in place against China, they will look to move product, uh, Chinese-owned production to third countries. Um, they will look to ship through third countries to transship. Uh, these schemes are well-known and out there. Um, and surely if they lose uh, at the WTO, or when they lose, in our view, <laughs> they, will, uh, they will look for other ways to, tr to try and achieve the same result and to try and uh, lower their their dumping margins and subsidy margins in trade cases. Okay, so I think that's another example of a hidden story. Of I, I wasn't aware that countries were one-off negotiating with China, and China was demanding that market economy status, uh, which is interesting when you consider a recent action uh, by the country of Mexico um, 
and I, I'm sure you followed this, but they had implemented, my understanding is some 180-day ban on, so they kind of have uh, a tariff applied, my understanding is to uh, Chinese goods that are shipped into Mexico. Um, I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. It sounds like a country like Mexico, on the on the other hand, uh, might be considered one of the larger trading partners and seems to be following more of the American protocol, if you will, in terms of looking at China. I'm just curious if you had some commentary on Mexico. Yeah, I think think that's true. Um, Mexico's in an interesting position with these um, North American free trade agreement uh, negotiations. Uh, You would think that uh, Mexico would want to strengthen some of the NAFTA rules um, for how you treat a product as a NAFTA product. Um, one of the points we're trying to make in these negotiations is that uh, China shouldn't be allowed to send uh, steel into uh, Mexico, have it made into an auto part where the vast majority of the content is Chinese, and have that be treated as a product of Mexico with NAFTA duty-free treatment on it. So um, this is, uh, has been a focus of Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross uh, in the negotiations, and the United States has proposed this very aggressively. We think it's in Mexico's own interest to have as much of an auto part or as much of a downstream product actually made in Mexico as possible. So it's not just taking Chinese steel or Russian steel. Uh, adding a little bit of value and claiming it to be a product of Mexico. Um, so we'll see. I mean, these negotiations are critical. Uh, it's why the Trump administration has put such a high value on them. And uh, hopefully uh, we will see Mexico uh, try to act in a way that's supportive of uh, NAFTA manufacturing, getting the benefits of free trade and non-NAFTA manufacturing, uh, not getting those benefits. Got it, which makes sense. And it seems as though they're um, moving in that direction, but we'll see. It seems like a tenuous negotiation all the same for NAFTA. Are there any topics that we, you know, around Section 232, around trade cases, retaliation that um, we failed to ask that would be interesting in this conversation that we ought to be talking about? Well, there's another uh, tool in the toolbox uh, that has not been used for some time but that the Trump administration is showing some interest in, and that is Section 301 of the trade laws. Um, This is something that was used prior to the creation of the World Trade Organization for the United States to address unreasonable practices around the world that burden or restrict or harm U.S. commerce. And um, uh, uh, one example of that was uh, countries that didn't have sufficient intellectual property laws. Um, United States could conduct an investigation under Section 301, uh, find that a country's laws were insufficient, and take action to try and convince them to uh, put some legal protections in place for U.S. intellectual property around the world. So Section 301 has, has largely deferred to the WTO since the WTO was created back in 1994, and yet the Trump administration has um, begun a Section 301 investigation as well. And 
although it's uh, more in the area of intellectual property, it has huge implications for manufacturing because what is being explored is uh, China's practices on technology transfer and forced localization where companies that want to invest abroad have to give up their intellectual property, have to enter into joint ventures where they have to transfer the technology to to their Chinese partner and uh, those sort of local requirements and how they are harmful. So uh, the Trump administration has again begun this investigation and if you think about about how many different kinds of industries are forced to do this to try and get into the Chinese market, it could be hugely important um, for uh, manufacturing, for services, for uh, any kind of company trying to export and trying to do business abroad and in China, which is often the world's largest market. You know, it's interesting. And thank you for opening that door because it sort of ties into, and I'm going to use this for lack of a better description, but sort of the Cato argument against doing anything for Section 232, 232, but just, you know, how they're describing free trade. And basically, the one of the main arguments they make is that these trade remedies, you know, basically positively impact upstream manufacturers, but not downstream manufacturers. And, um, you know, they make the whole value add argument that there's more jobs, more employment, et cetera, in the downstream industries. And yet we, you know, we're seeing companies like Whirlpool, you know, with their circumvention case uh, battle and, and sort of look more like the, you know, a lot of upstream industries, if you will. And, and as you're mentioning this 301, it sounds like it's similar, right? The intellectual property might be, you know, at risk for these value added manufacturers. So I, yes. I, Exactly. And China is moving into these value-added industries as well. Um, All you have to do is look at the Made in 2025 uh, plan that China has put forward. If you want to know where they're headed, uh, sure, today it's it's, uh, primary steel and aluminum, but uh, it's going to be more sophisticated value-added products, uh, manufactured products. And, you know, they're targeting renewable energy. Um, They're targeting uh, green technologies. They're targeting self-driving cars and aircraft and semiconductors. And so uh, it's important to uh, to defend the intellectual property rights because it does affect these cutting-edge technologies where the United States currently has an advantage, where China is clearly going to use uh, its governmental power and its laws to try and, and gain access to those technologies and to be a, a leader um, within the next five to 10 years. So so uh, it's another area that has to be closely watched. And, and China is not going to be set aside being uh, a basic manufacturer. It's uh, It's already moving up the chain and will continue to do so. Yeah, and unfortunately, it sounds like we've, and I've heard a lot of companies are sort of remiss about going into China early and having to give up some of that intellectual property in order to, you know, to play there in in many respects. So our own industry kind of jumpstarting or helping a lot of those industries eventually compete against them. It's notable that there are, uh, for one thing, on the trade uh, policy front, there are a number, number of appointments uh, working through the process, uh, senior officials that the Trump administration is 
trying to put in place at the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, the Commerce Department, and even new commissioners at the International Trade Commission. And um, some of those have been on hold or are moving fairly slowly. But um, how quickly those uh, those people come into place will sort of help determine how quickly uh, the Trump administration is able to move ahead on on some of these key priorities. Um, and then I think the other thing, as mentioned, is uh, NAFTA is not the only trade agreement being looked at. There are a lot of concerns about the Korea-U.S. free trade agreement and uh, whether or not that has been beneficial for U.S. companies. Uh, there are a lot of people that feel that there's a lot more Korean steel exports and Korean auto exports coming to the United States uh, as a result of the agreement, but the same is not true for U.S. steel and um, U.S. autos going back to Korea. So uh, I think uh, it's a fascinating time to be in the area of trade law and trade policy. There are new developments every day, and um, we're, we're looking to see how uh, the current trade laws are being used and also how some of these, uh, these laws that haven't been used in some time will play out. Um, and the initial signs were very positive that this administration uh, is going to take an aggressive uh, path to using the trade laws, but uh, that runs up against some of the reality in Washington, and we'll have to see what what plays out and what wins uh, over over the next uh, uh, over the coming months and years. Great. No, I agree. And this was fascinating, Tim. I really appreciate um, all of your thoughtfulness and, and also just addressing some of the more technical issues that I think we maybe haven't had as much media coverage. So um, I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Lisa. Great talking with you. And I hope this is helpful to your, uh, to your listeners. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share with a colleague or a friend. You can also follow our podcast on SoundCloud. And don't forget to check out our coverage of trade policy and what it means for metal buying organizations on our website, metalminer.com. Have a great week.